My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. I want to share with you a little bit about a journey that I've been on the last 10 years. It started about 10 years ago when I began to enter a season of depression. Now, we are in this series called Contagious Hope, and we started uh, the first four messages or so with all this idea of optimism and hope. And I really believe that. I'm, a, I'm an optimistic person. Uh, my optimism gauge is usually pretty full, and I'm pretty excited about life. Um, but there was a season where my optimism really ran low. And if you've ever, you know, seen that yellow light go off in your car saying you need to get gas, my optimism level was like that. And so last week I talked a little bit about discouragement. You know, why is my soul downcast? Why is my soul discouraged? Put your hope in God. Today I want to talk about the issue of depression and where do we turn when we realize life isn't turning out the way we think it should turn out. And then the uh, next couple of weeks, we'll talk about that and lift our way back up as we conclude this series. So my optimism level was incredibly low, and I didn't know what was going on. And I've never struggled with depression before. I didn't, you know, I'd talk to people, especially some men who'd gone through some male depression, but I hadn't experienced it. And I felt like I was beginning to go into a tunnel, a very dark tunnel. And it was worrying me because this is not normally who I am. And so as I was talking with a friend, another pastor, uh, at a lunchtime, I was, you know, sharing. He asked me the question, how are you doing? And it wasn't one of those, oh, doing great. You know, it was like, honestly, I'm not doing that well. And I started to explain this. He said, let me help you out. And he's an older, wiser pastor. And he was finishing up his doctoral work. And he was serving all of the pastors in the Pacific Northwest in his denomination. And he said, I've got a couple more seats on this survey. I'd love to survey you. And it, it's specific to churches that are growing. And Sunrise had been growing at a, just a, a great rate. It was exciting. But it was exhausting. And we were building. And we were moving. And all these kind of things. And so when the survey result came back, he and I met for lunch. He said, I need to tell you you're in the danger zone. He said, there are five areas that typically pastors will blow up or burn out just to get out of ministry because it's just, it's just wearing on your soul. And he says, you've got two of them. So you're not like horrible, horrible, but you're bad. Okay. I'm like, okay, thanks for encouraging me. Uh, and he said, the reality is that you're on the verge of, of darkness. I said, I feel that way. He said, you have very little self-regard. You don't consider yourself anymore. And there's no happiness in your life. And I, I realized that. Now, you know, I was true. And, and if you've ever been to the point of depression, you know what it's like 
when you eat food and you don't even taste it. When you go to bed at night and you wake up tired. You know what it's like when you do things but there's no more pleasure. That was my life. And so we talked about it and he kind of probed a little bit and asked me questions. And it started me on a journey of a couple years of realizing why I was in the place I was and how God was bringing me out. And it was really helpful. Now, there were two big issues going on in my life. The first one um, was what's called SAD. Anybody ever get SAD, seasonal affected disorder? Yeah, hello. Okay, I'm from California, and the sun shines, all right? And so I moved to the Pacific Northwest, and the gray glows, okay? Liquid sunshine does not do the same thing. And what I hadn't realized what was for many, many years, I had been traveling to East Africa in January or February for two or three weeks to train pastors. East Africa, Uganda, all those places, they're on the equator. It's the best sun on the planet. You know, you only get 12 hours exactly of sunlight, but it was amazing. Somehow, for some reason, my life had gotten so busy, I hadn't traveled for at least a year. And so it kind of caught up with me. And I didn't know what was going on. And so, um, you know, I basically kind of looked it up and, and I, I went to Costco, as you should do, not just to get samples, but I got a happy light. You know what a happy light is? It's a special temperature light that you set there in the morning, about 30, 45 minutes, and you turn it on. And so I would just do it every morning while I was doing my Bible study, eating breakfast, and I would turn that on. And that helped me a lot. Plus, I resumed going to the sun in January or February, which I do now every year. That just like gets me in that moment. Uh, but it took a while to recover from that, from that gloom and depression. But the deeper issue was, and this is, this is actually going to be hard to talk about, um, but I had opened up twice in our pastor's meetings, and we met every week, and, and you know, 10, 12, 13 of us, and, and I had shared two different times over a six-month period exactly what was going on in my life. And my heart ached as I was met with silence. Nobody said anything. Nobody responded. Maybe depression isn't fun to talk about, so you just ignore it, right? Nobody said, hey, James, let's go out to lunch. Let's talk. Let's go grab some coffee. I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to know more what's going on. There was just complete silence, except for one person. And this one person began to use that information against me. He began to use that to undermine me. And it was not a good thing. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a kind of a warfare reality because he was tearing down my soul. And at one point he looked at me and said, I don't think you're fit to be senior pastor anymore. I should take that job. Well, I'd taken a sabbatical, things got better, and I came back and all of a sudden the pastors are crying out and we all met except him and they all told me he had been doing the same thing to them. And so we got together, grabbed our elders and we just interviewed and we just said, you're done because you are not for us, you're against us. But it took a long time to build my hope back up, my self-esteem back up. And if you've ever been in any of those situations or other situations that lead to not just despair and discouragement, but depression, you know what I'm talking about. It is a frightening thing to be in that tunnel, to be maybe even entering it or to, to be deep in it and not know if there's a light at the end of it. But I'll tell you, there is hope, my friends. There is a reality of God in your life that will change your life. Now, it's not an easy out. It's not an easy exit out of the tunnel. But 
I'll share with you what God did for me by teaching me some truths of scripture. I love the Bible. I, I read it. I'm, I'm, I process through it every year. I go through it. And, and the words of scripture speak to me, especially Psalms. And they were speaking to me and they were instructing me. And I, I love reading about what God says to you and me and the hope he gives us. Because the Bible says that God is a God of hope. Just like we sang, we started, you know, a song of hope. We have a reason to have a hope, even though it feels like the world is just falling apart, okay? Have you just been noticing all of the things that have been going on? The droughts and the fires and all the things, the floods in Germany? I mean, it's crazy what's happening in our world. But in the middle of all that, God promises that because he puts his spirit inside of us and he's given us Jesus, who's not only died on the cross for our sins, to pay for our sin debt, but he rose again and he promised us an opportunity of a resurrection that even though we die here on the earth, we have a hope. So really, nothing can happen to us on this earth that should cause us really to give up hope, even when it's difficult. Um, I, I, I read this last week. I, I just want to get the details right. I found out there are 8,810 promises in the Bible. That's a lot of promises, Okay. 8,810 8, promises in the Bible. And 85% of those are from God to us. 85% of those verses, God promises something to you and to me. And those are amazing promises. Some are specifically to groups of people, like to guys and people and gals and, and nations or whatever. Um, some are to us as a church. Um, but the reality is there are a lot of promises. Now, when I first came to faith in Jesus, I was going to a Baptist church in Petaluma, California, and we sang one of the hymns that I'm, I'm, you probably know is called Standing on the Promises. Anybody know that song, Standing on the Promises? Okay, I'm not going to sing it because I'd drive everybody else out. Uh, but Standing on the Promises. And I remember one year thinking, you know, what, what are the promises of God? And every year when I read the Bible, I kind of look for a new theme and a new message. It's like, what is the subject that I want to highlight? Because there's so much in Scripture. And one year I just looked at promises. And I took the notepad and all the promises. And I wanted to know those. And I came up across one promise that I didn't like. I really wasn't happy about it. I wanted to argue with Jesus, but he was already gone and he was in heaven. And so, uh, you know, and I, I'm like, I don't think this is a good promise. But I, I began to embrace the promise, especially in my season of discouragement and depression, because I realized it's life. And Jesus is with his guys, his disciples, on the night he's to be betrayed in an upper room having a meal. And he's giving them all this instruction about what's going to happen, how he's going to go away, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And he, you know, begins the process of communicating to them that it's not going to be easy. And so this is what he says. It's right here on the screen. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise of God. In this world, you will have trouble. You've never seen that on anybody's plaque in their home, right? When you go in like Joy of the Lord or, you know, Bible verses or whatever, promises. Remember those old Thomas Kincaid pictures? There's never one of those, you know, cabins in the wood with the deer there bursting into flames where it says, in this world, you'll have trouble. Nobody likes to think about that, right? But that's a promise from Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The word trouble literally 
in other translations is communicated or translated as tribulation, affliction, anguish, burden, or persecution. But literally, it means to crush. It means to press. It means to squeeze or cause distress. Thank you, Jesus. That's a promise. In this world, you will be squeezed. You will be pressed. You will go under, under distress. You will experience incredible opposition is what Jesus is saying. Now, of course, he's talking to these disciples about their launching, Jesus launching the church and their leadership in this. But the fact is, it's not if, but when you get squeezed. Jesus says, it's a reality of life. No matter how deep your relationship with me is, no matter how much optimism and hope you have, you will go through tough times. How many of you in the last year plus have gone through a tough time? Okay, I don't know where the rest of you lived and if COVID was not going on there, but we've gone through a tough time. We've gone through a tough season. Jesus says it's going to happen. When we go through difficulty, we go through discouragement, we go through disappointment, we go through times of suffering, we go through times of sorrow, we go through times of sadness, we go through times of frustration and failure and fatigue. That's a normal part of life. And Jesus says, take heart. Literally, this idea of take heart means not just to have courage, but to be bold and stand firm. Remember in the Old Testament, when Moses has passed away and the leadership has been given over to Joshua, God visits Joshua and says these words. He says, be strong and courageous, right? He says, be strong and courageous. Commit my words to your heart. Meditate on them day and night. But you take a stand for me. You be strong and courageous. And that's what Jesus is saying here. In this world, you're going to be crushed and pressed. You're going to have stress and strife. You're going to have difficulty. But don't waver in your commitment. Be bold. Be courageous. Now, Jesus is saying this. And now, don't forget this. That night, he's going to be betrayed in a garden. That next all 24-hour period, he is going to suffer persecution like we would never know. He's going to go to a cross and die. And so Jesus doesn't say this as a nice theoretical thing because he knows that he is taking heart. He knows he is standing strong. He knows that his heavenly father is going to care for him through the stress, through the crushing, through the disappointment and the distress that he himself is going to go through in just a number of hours. And he says to them, you take heart because he says this. He says, I have overcome the world. There's nothing, my friends, that will happen to you that could ever happen to you in this place that should shake your faith to the point of walking away because Jesus has overcome the world. It doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that life is always going to be pleasant. It doesn't mean that everything is going to go your way, that all the arrows are going to go up and to the right. It doesn't mean that. It just that means that when you hold on to him, you will be okay. Now, we often think that peace is the absence of conflict. We talk about this peace in a relationship. We, we say this, can there ever be peace in the Middle East? Which means, you know, there's no more conflict, right? But that's not what real peace is all about. It's in the middle of differing relationships, differing desires, that we can be together and walk together. The reality is in the midst, in the very middle of our trouble, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. Jesus invites us into peace in the midst of pain. Now, again, he's telling this to his disciples who within a few short weeks are going to become the leaders of the church. And they're going to see incredible growth as the Holy Spirit comes in, incredible expansion of the church. But within a few short years, there's going to be incredible persecution. And 
these guys, to the, with the exception of one who still suffers greatly, these guys are all going to die for their belief in Jesus. They are all going to suffer horribly because their faith in Jesus and the work they do to take the message of Jesus everywhere, to go, to make disciples, to baptize and teach. It's not going to be an easy life for them and their families, but they are going to go because Jesus is going in them and through them. And so he says this, Jesus was preparing them for pain. And so he says, take heart. Now for me, this was incredible for me in this moment. I realized that Jesus had already overcome my problems. He had overcome my struggles. I just had to take heart. I had to hold on. I had to not waver. I had to be bold and realize that, you know, trouble is going to come my way. What did I expect? I'm a human being in a broken, sinful world. And even with people, people will come against you. People will slander you. People will hurt you. That is the reality of life. But what am I going to do in the middle of my pain? And so I just kept crying out to God in this. That same word trouble is found in the Apostle Paul's words to the Corinthians. He writes this church in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this, therefore, we do not lose heart. He's been writing about the fact that our bodies are like these fragile jars of clay and life is not easy. Now, Paul's writing this, okay, and he knows what it's like to have suffering and persecution in his life. And so he's writing as a person who's experienced it. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. We take heart. We take courage. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. Now that is not something you want to sit with someone when they're going through hospice and go, you know, these are light and momentary troubles, you know. But in the perspective of eternity, Paul says, yeah, it's huge now, but in the future it will be light. We will look back and it won't be anything and compare compared to the pleasure that we receive. These troubles, there's the same word that Jesus said, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In other words, on the scale of all of the pressures you're facing now, they're very real. But when you enter into eternity, you'll look back and you realize that was nothing compared to all that I've gained and all God has given me. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen. Remember in the book of Hebrews, we're told in chapter 12, who are we to fix our eyes on? Jesus, right? By the way, the correct answer to that question is Jesus. Okay, it's not, just the, it's not just the Jesus answer. It's true. We keep our eyes focused on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so you and I walk this life with everything seen around us. We see everything. We see the people. We see the, the job. We see the schooling. We see the responsibilities. We see the pressure. We see all of the struggle and turmoil in the world. We see all that. Those are all temporary. They're just going to pass away. Every one of us, we're all temporary. We're just going to pass away. But what is not seen, that's the eternal. And so keep your focus on the eternal. Now, the reality is this, is that we all have a temporary life. And Paul is not just saying here, and he is saying it, but he's not just saying, my body's wasting away. How many of you would be honest enough to say that my body's wasting away. Anybody? Anybody over like 22? Okay, it's like downhill after that. Okay, and some of you, it's pretty downhill. Let's just be honest, right? Okay, let's just be frank. We wake up with aches and pains, right? Anybody, like one of your favorite parts of your diet is Advil? Okay, all right? Okay, um, I, I went to my doctor, did my uh, annual checkup, but he said, you should start taking aspirin. 
I'm like, why? He goes, for your heart. I'm like, oh man, are we going to have this conversation? He goes, yeah, you're over 50. You need 81 milligrams every two to three days because that'll blood. I'm like, man, seriously, I'm wasting away. Okay, I am. I'm wasting away. Some of you feel it right now, right? He is saying that, but he's saying something bigger. He's saying all of this life is wasting away. It's all falling apart. It's all decaying. And there is a part of us, an internal part of us, our soul, our spirit, in a relationship with God that needs to be shining brightly through the decay, the jar of clay that's fractured and broken and getting more and more feeble as the years go by because we want to shine the light of Christ. And this is exactly how Paul lived his life. Even when he was in prison, even, even when he was under incredible persecution, had to flee from people that wanted to take his life, he stood firm for Jesus and he was a bright light shining there. The stuff of this earth is diminishing in value in our eyes. Now we all know what the second law of thermodynamics is. We may not understand it uh, to the point of quoting it and everything, but it basically says this, that everything goes from a condition of order to disorder, a state of of complexity uh, as far as like something you can see and clear to a state of disorder. And if you, if you don't believe the second law of thermodynamics, you've never had kids, okay? Because all you got to do is have teenagers and everything decays, right? Everything goes from this beautifully complex thing and it begins to fall apart. Everything in life is that way. And that is the reality of this existence. But Paul says there's a different reality going on for those of us who are followers of Jesus because we have an internal life. And even though we have troubles, really in perspective of eternity, they're light and they're momentary and they're achieving for us a glory that's going to outweigh all of our struggles. The end of last year, I read uh, a great book. Actually, I listened to it in the car on Audible. And um, it, was, it was talked about by a friend, and I thought, i got to listen to that book. And it's by a man named Jerry Sitzer. He's a professor at a school up in Spokane. And it's called A Grief, a, a, I'm sorry, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss, A Grace Disguised. And an incredible amount of vulnerability, he shares his story of grief and loss. In one moment, on a darkened night up in northern Idaho, he sees the headlights of a car coming down this dirty, dusty road, swerving back and forth. And he can't avoid it. And the drunk driver hits the minivan head on. And in one moment, he loses his mother, he loses his wife, and he loses his daughter. Three generations of women in his life are gone in that moment. And he's left with two children in deep distress, scarred because of that. And so he writes this book as an understanding of his own journey through grief and loss. Now, I wasn't experiencing anything like that. But I know that as a pastor, I walk with people through grief. And this man weaves together in this book suffering and pain and the grace of God in the daily moment of depending upon him. And he uses this passage that a light and momentary struggle, affliction, or trouble is going to achieve something that far outweighs anything we can see on this earth. And again, I wasn't going through it for me. I was just walking through a grief book because I know I walk people through grief. And I know that one day I'll have a level of grief that I've never experienced before. And so I began to share in his grief through this book And he came back again and again and again 
And at a level of tragedy, I'm sure none of us will ever know. He says, what I learned was simply this. We all taste trouble. But if we let God in, God brings his grace that transforms all of our grief into something that's beautiful. Now that could sound cheap to a guy like me saying it. But the guy lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter in one moment in a sinful, broken, needless tragedy because of a drunk driver, he says it, I believe it. He goes on to say, when we come to the end of ourselves, we can come face to face with our loving Heavenly Father who gives us a new hope. Now, next week, we're going to ask the why question. We're going to talk about the why question, but I want to dig into it just a little bit. So why does God allow tension, transition, and trouble in our life? Why does he allow this crushing stress? Why, why, why was Jesus not just right when he said it, but why can we say, okay, Jesus, I take that. I accept that. When he said, in this world, you will be squeezed, you will be pressed, you will be crushed, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Why does he do that? One of the reasons, and this is what Sitzer writes in his book, is that the truth is we're on our own journey. Life is busy, life is full, life is occupied. And sometimes we get our eyes off of the eternal. And God will allow things into our life, even the result of sin and brokenness. And he'll draw us close to himself. We're going to talk about the book of Job next week. That's a fun topic, right? When you lose everything. But God is still there. In fact, He even feels more there, if that's possible, when we experience an incredible loss. I know I grew up thinking life was going to be great. I knew as a kid, you know, having all this optimism, thinking life is going to be just amazing. And I'll I'll be honest, it has been awesome, right? I'm a really blessed person. But, But I'd have to say this, life has been harder than I ever imagined. Anybody understand that? It's been harder than I ever imagined. But I would say as well, in the middle of all that, it's been more rewarding than I ever imagined. And God has transformed my pain and my struggle, my trouble, in a way that actually changed me to draw closer to him. And I know he does that in your life and my life. We don't always get to choose what happens to us, but we do get to choose how to respond to the troubles in this life. When I was a child, uh, the Vietnam War was still going on. I was just a little kid. In the middle of that, a country western artist, uh, Lynn Anderson, wrote this song. Uh, I never promised you a rose garden. Anybody old enough? You know, I beg your pardon. Right? <laughs> and it's like, that's a, that was a good song. It was a reminder is, did we think life was going to be easy? <laughs> Who told us that? Who sold us the lie that life was going to be great? Okay. And I think even in church sometimes we pretend that, oh, because we love Jesus, everything's going to be fine. He's going to shield us. He's going to protect us. Bad things will not happen to us. That is not reality. In fact, as followers of Jesus, we get attacked even more because we now have an enemy, Satan himself, with his sights on us. But in the middle of trouble, we take heart and Jesus has overcome all that. Jesus actually... uh, said it better, I think, than Lynn Anderson at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, or kind of in the middle in uh, Matthew chapter 6. He says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? He's talking about 
the fact that we have a heavenly father that cares for us. And I know there's a lot of pressure. And Jesus says, don't worry about what you eat or what you drink or what you wear. For the pagans, those who don't have a heavenly father, run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need these things. These are legitimate needs. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well in other words put God first keep your eyes set on God and God will fulfill these desires and needs and he says this therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough and here's our word trouble of its own that's another promise don't worry Don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow is going to be a pain, in other words. And what Jesus is basically saying here is don't borrow tomorrow's troubles. Today's troubles are enough for you. Now, think about this. This is kind of cool. There is an important distinction between fear and anxiety. Fear is a natural response to maybe being attacked or being perceived as under threat and you respond accordingly. It's a fight or flight mentality, right? Uh, last week, uh, Sunday afternoon, after I preached, I hopped on my bike and uh, motorcycle, and I rode to the Tri-Cities to begin this uh, multi-day prayer ride. And I was about Multnomah Falls. I'm in the left lane. I'm cruising along, and uh, this sedan is in the right lane, kind of right in front of me there, and she doesn't see me. Why? Because I'm a motorcyclist. We don't exist on the road. And I'm just cruising along, having a great time, Multnomah parking lots full, making aware of all my surroundings. And immediately I see this car is coming right into me. Now, what did I do? I, it was like fight, right? It was flight. It was like immediate, hit the brakes, look around, make sure I stop, you know, slow down. Okay. She zipped on by, never saw me. Okay. That's a natural response to fear. Somebody comes at you, you want to defend yourself, right? Fear is a natural, every, every creature on the planet has that has a natural response to fear. But anxiety is different. Now check this out. We are, scientifically, we are the only creatures on the planet that have an awareness of something other than now. We know past, and and past can be good or bad. We know present, but we also have an awareness of future. I guarantee you the birds don't. The, the, The cats don't. Flowers don't. I know my cats don't have an awareness of the future. They just take the nap now, right? Okay. We are the only creatures that can borrow tomorrow's fear. Now think about this. You're lying in bed at night, and you're just drifting off to sleep, and you hear a rattling or a busting of a window. What do you do? You, you, you're, you're, you're scared, right? You should be, right? You either call 911 or go get the shotgun, okay, depending on your fight or flight response, okay? All right. And you naturally respond to that. You should respond to that. You have to go into protection mode. You have to go into defense mode. Okay. But imagine that you're lying in bed and you're worrying that someone might break into your home. And it's not actually happening, but you can create it in your head, right? You are having fear about fear. You are borrowing some supposed troubles, and you are experiencing the same fight or flight response when there is no stimulus. That's called anxiety. And Jesus says, don't worry. Don't have anxiety about not having enough food, not having enough drink, not having enough clothing. People without God have that, but you have a heavenly father that cares for you and knows you and loves you. 
put him first. He'll take care of all your needs. And then he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't borrow tomorrow's troubles, right? Because, and here it is, each day has enough trouble of its own. It's like, thank you so much, Jesus. That's encouraging, right? (laughs) Today is enough for today. Don't worry about, don't think about, don't borrow tomorrow's troubles. Put your trust in God today because you have a heavenly father that's going to care for you now. Now, along my journey of kind of bouncing back and coming through that dark tunnel, I realized that one of the most important gifts I could ever give my wife or my kids or the staff here or you as a church is not just a fully sold out pastor who's committed to God and committed to you, loving God, loving you, but also a guy that's so full of optimism that it oozes out, it leaks out. There's a saying in business, the speed of the leader, the speed of the team, but I'll say it this way, I found this out true, the speed of the pastor, the speed of the church, the hope of the pastor, the hope of the church. And I knew, and with God's grace, I was gonna get back into this level of hope. Discouragement, though, friends, is the forerunner of death. Think about this. No relationship has ever died that didn't die first because of its discouragement. No marriage has ever died that did not die first because of discouragement. No dream has ever died that did not die first because of discouragement. Nobody ever killed themselves that they had not already done so because of discouragement. And discouragement is what the enemy will use to take you and me down a path. And he had me for a while. Howard Hendricks, great Bible teacher, has passed away now, and uh, commentator. He gave this uh, powerful definition of discouragement. He said, discouragement is the anesthetic the devil uses on a person just before he reaches in and carves out his heart. (laughs) I like that. Check this out. Discouragement, discouragement, despair, hopelessness. Discouragement is the anesthetic the devil uses on a person just before he reaches in and carves out his heart. Friends, when you lose hope, when you lose hope, when you lose the ability to see goodness by God in the future, when fear replaces faith, when worry replaces prayer, when insecurity replaces confidence, tomorrow's dreams are replaced by today's nightmares, right? And we lose hope. The greatest gift you could ever give someone is hope. That is why we have Jesus. That is why we have a gospel message that says no matter what happens in this world, No matter the floods, the fires, no matter what we lose in this lifetime, this lifetime is not all we have. We have a relationship with God that transcends whatever can happen in this world. Whatever will happen in your life, you will lose loved ones. You will suffer loss. You will be crushed. You will be persecuted. Jesus says you will have trouble, but take heart. Have hope. I have overcome the world. Put your eyes, fix your eyes on me. I want to close with a beautiful verse that gave me so much hope, and I want to pray it over you from Romans 15. The Apostle Paul finishes his letter, basically, with some salutations, and he writes this. He says, may the God of hope, this is a blessing, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. May the God of all hope, friends, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We're doing this uh, priesthood, Aaron's priesthood blessing. I want to do this one next for a couple months. This is great, right? May the God of hope, 
If you don't have hope today, don't worry about it. He's a God of hope. He'll give you some hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Put him first, seek him first, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, we are in a world that is desperately in need of hope. Not false hope, not false assurances, but true hope because of Jesus. You need to go out this day. You need to go out this week to your workplace, to whatever you're doing, to your neighborhood, to your club, to whatever you I know school's out in the fall with school. You need to go out so overflowing with hope that people look at you and ask you for the reason, for the hope that you have, and you point to Jesus. You need that hope. And so I want to pray this over you right now. So close your eyes. I want to read the verse and pray this over you. May the God of hope, God, I thank you for being the God of hope, the God of all hope. I don't know what the hope level is today in this room. I don't know what the gauge would say on the dashboard of their life of hope. It may be full. It may be weak. It may be yellow blinking light. They may be just living on vapors right now. But you are a God of hope. I pray that you would fill everyone in this room with joy, And with peace, as we put our hope and our sights and our trust in you, and so that we may overflow with hope to other people by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. God, if we don't have that Holy Spirit inside of us, if we don't have this new life in Jesus Christ, if we don't have forgiveness of our sins, of our brokenness, of our alienation from you, God, we can have it today because of what Jesus has done. Because he went to a cross, he died for our sins, he rose again, and now says we will experience that resurrection one day. And we will be be with him in eternity. And that is the hope that gives us the ability to continue on. May that hope fill us and then overflow to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. Uh, We are going to receive our communion time during the song when the worship team leads us through this. And I'll tell you, it's a great opportunity for you to come to the tables. Uh, The bread representing the body of Christ that went to the cross for us. The the cup representing the blood of Christ that covered over our sins. And in this moment, if you don't have hope, would you just lean on the person around you and just say, I need some hope. And let them pray over you. And then I'll tell you what, man, man, Let the God of hope fill you. If you find yourself with overflowing hope, find someone today that doesn't have a lot of hope and overflow Jesus' hope into their life as we go to the Lord's table.